Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay, here we go. In this episode, I am joined by Colin to discuss the inimitable Ken Wheeler. Those of you who don't know who Ken Wheeler is, well, let me give you a thumbnail sketch of some of his primary ideas right here at the outset, because I feel like I kind of didn't do the best job of keeping us on point and making sure we cover all the bases. So there's a few things that are probably worth just providing a framework for. Ken Wheeler is a guy who is a YouTube personality. He makes a lot of videos that basically are about metaphysics, electromagnetic theory, and cameras. And it seems like he started as a translator of ancient texts. He's got Greek, Sanskrit, and I guess Pali. He calls it something else, Polycrit, something like that. One of the things that he discusses quite often are some of the problems that he sees with the ways that some of these texts have been interpreted. So he's got a beef in particular with the Buddhists, the modern-day Buddhists, for believing that there is no soul. So he's got a, an interesting uh, set of videos. and There are many of them, actually, because he kind of revisits the same topics over and over again. And so he claims that it's a, it's a, a misinterpretation of what the original text says. So there's that. And then he's also written a book that's called Uncovering the missing, missing Secrets of Electromagnetism, I believe. And his videos on that subject cover a wide range of issues, much of it similarly critical of the mainstream narrative. So he's very dismissive and um, I think unnecessarily uh, harsh in his ridicule of of mainstream physics, let's say. But he does have a very interesting way of describing what he thinks is going on. And it essentially involves a concept called incommensurability, which uh, we didn't talk about in this episode, so I want to briefly outline what that is. You could say that things are incommensurate when they are dependent upon each other and at the same time have no overlap. So they are basically inextricably entwined and yet have no overlap. And he uses this term to describe the relationship between the dielectric and magnetic fields. And he, he does a lot of experiments, which is also very interesting because he's constantly playing with magnets and ferrocells, which allow you to see the fields of magnets and uh, CRT tubes and all kinds of stuff to illustrate the, the ideas that he's, that he's working with. And a lot of it makes a lot of sense. So he talks about the geometry of the magnetic field essentially being toroidal in nature. It's like a donut. And that the dielectric phenomena is a, a hyperboloid, I believe is the word, which is sort of like an hourglass shape. And the two obviously fit together, but they're incommensurate. They, they are conjugal, and they don't overlap, but they fit perfectly together. He also talks about the relationship between 
counter space and space. So he talks about counter space as being a non-physical, but a reality. It's a non-physical reality that's in the center of every atom of the universe. So he believes that, in essence, the universe consists of these dielectric magnetic entities. And that counter space is incommensurate with space. It's a fascinating idea. He's got a lot of ways of illustrating why he thinks this is a good model. I don't think he's actually the best explicator of his own ideas. I think that there's another YouTube channel called Fractal Woman. I think she does a way better job of explaining his ideas. And she's also got great experiments that she shows. So I highly recommend that if you're interested in Ken Wheeler, maybe the best way to Ken Wheeler is through Fractal Woman. So maybe sometime we'll talk about Fractal Woman because she's got a lot of her own ideas that I think uh, are really, they, they fit very nicely with Wheeler's ideas. There's one more thing I'd like to mention just really quickly here. And yes, I'm using a different microphone. And if you had listened to the last episode, you would know that uh, this is the kind of production value that you can come to expect from the Assembly of Silence. So uh, in this episode, there are a couple of points where we start talking about the trigrams again. So if that is like Greek to you, I've put a few links to the YouTube page and a paper on Medium that describe the basics, what's necessary in order to understand the language of the trigrams and, you know, join the very few of us who are speaking of this ancient system in the terms that, um, that you will hear on this program. So, uh, Please take a look at that. And of course, if you think this is a good program and you want to support it uh, tangibly with some kind of currency, let's say, that's awesome. You can do so by going to Patreon, sign up for a, a dollar a month, I think is the cheapest we can go there. Um, or if you don't want to do Patreon, patreon.com slash Taiji Reality, T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y. Uh, you can do the crypto, which I have links for in the show notes. And if you don't want to do that, but you still think it's kind of a cool program, please pass it on. You see something going on somewhere on this whole internet thing, and you go, you know what? These people could use a little silent assembly. Drop it on them. Okay. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this episode. So here we are. We're going to discuss uh, Ken Wheeler. Who? Mm-hmm. How do we? Uh, how do we st- describe this guy? And how do we describe why it is that we're interested in in talking about him? Well, he's a <laughs> he's a fat, bald, self-proclaimed genius and translator. Best for, translator of. I don't know, Pali and maybe Greek and other ancient languages. Yeah. And you, you told me, you told me about him and um, you, you basically said, you know, he's kind of a, an arrogant asshole, which is definitely seems to be the case. Uh, but he seems to know what he's talking about. And uh, when I started listening to him after you recommended, I'm just like, Whoa, because the stuff he talks about is it meshes with a lot of the other stuff that I'm, 
hearing. Like uh, I, I kind of run with circles and circles of people who talk about how gravity is no different from you know the electro electromagnetism, and um, mm -hmm. that just seems to be true to me. But you know, I also live right next to um, someone who works at like Los Alamos labs, you know, like a high level, you know, making high tech secret stuff. And uh, if I say something like gravity is the same thing as electromagnetism, he'll think I'm crazy. And so Ken Willers, this guy who's basically saying everything, everybody in the world, all these scientists that we say are smart, they're working on a fraudulent, based on a fraudulent theory, you know, what the stuff that Einstein came out of, um, Know, the thing like leaving in particles and things like that and can it's basically just saying that's all bullshit uh, we should go back to the, to the ether theory which is what we believed in ancient times or what Nikola Tesla and things like the guy who gave us the modern world believe and um, so yeah that's the kind of type of stuff he talks about he talks about Buddhism and um, he's really into Platonism and but he like half of his videos are about cameras so he's just like some average Joe bum guy who's really is a genius as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I was thinking maybe we could call this episode, you know, what's wrong with Ken Wheeler? Cause yeah, there, there is so much there that seems to be so on the money and yet something just ain't quite right. And I can't quite put my finger on it. And I don't know whether it's just a personality thing and, uh, I mean, I actually don't think of him as being an asshole. I just think of him as being more of a, he's like a curmudgeon and he's got an ax to grind and he seems to be, mm -hmm. um, he really likes to spend a lot of time talking about how stupid everyone is. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, like something about that just, I, I don't know if it just rubber it is that he's putting forth. Of course, he's presenting some pretty heady stuff. You know, whether it's his metaphysics mm -hmm. or, or the electromagnetic theory, it's the kind of thing that really requires a lot of rigor in order to make a real case for something. And, you know, the camera stuff, I don't know. I, I, I think he just, my guess is that he just loves gear and, uh, and thought that it would make a good YouTube channel. But even with that, mm -hmm. he's always talking about how all the other YouTube channels about cameras are all bullshit. You know, so. <laughs> I guess so. I think the issue is he's just he really is a genius. His mind does work uh, better, you know, on some levels than most people. And he spent his whole life like that. And if you grow up in a world where you suddenly realize that everything the current civilization believes is wrong and we used to know better you know, back in the past, but no one even knows that because no one can translate things accurately. And everyone's just a bunch of sheep just doing whatever the people who say they know what they're talking about say, even though they don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, he probably ends up alienated. And it just seems like that's the type of situation where you become bitter. And um, it feels good to, to vent bitterness, especially when you have an audience of people who finally actually want to listen to what you're saying. You just kind of want to release that stuff. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think he's got a hardcore. I've often now tried to picture what his story is. We get little glimpses of it here and there, and you can actually look at some of the earlier videos where he wasn't quite as heavy and had a different 
personality, actually, and many of those were about the the Buddhist issues. So it seems like he started, I wonder if he started uh, seriously practicing Buddhism and then got interested in the texts, or if it was sort of the other way around, but he looks a bit more like a Buddhist in the early videos. And so it may be that that's kind of what happened, but that he was very adept with language mm -hmm. and he may have learned some of the ancient languages and then gotten interested in Buddhism. And as he delved more and more deeply into it, realized that the Buddhism that was being practiced now had nothing to do with what the texts were really revealing. Yeah, I mean, the, it's the opposite. Well, yeah, and that and that seems to be in some respects kind of a pattern that that quite often original source differs from what springs from it in some profoundly contradictory way. Mm -hmm. You could say that that on some level, Tesla and Heaviside and Steinmetz, who actually created the modern world, these are the guys who were thinking and doing with a very specific understanding that now has kind of been flipped on its head in the rest in science in essence you know even within the field that sprang from them which is i guess electrical engineering the idea of the ether has been completely eliminated mm -hmm. so it seems that on some basic level there's a pattern of realization that then becomes negated. I guess it's it's a Hegelian pattern. You have some kind of a, a thesis is probably better than the original terminology. So you have a thesis, you have the antithesis, which is the negation of the thesis, and then you have some sort of synthesis, which is like a bastard child of the original idea. <laughs> and then those, I guess, who try to get back to the original essence of things are frustrated because the thing that's actually concrete, the thing that we're all living with is something that's this kind of haphazard, hackneyed, bastardized, all mixed up version of things. Yeah. And it seems like that's kind of what we're all being confronted with in so many different fields, whether it's in philosophy or, or in, uh, in science or politics or whatever it is, really. So do you think that is a fundamental thing which happens pretty much everywhere in nature or the universe? Or do you think that maybe that is specific to the human situation, maybe because of our genetics or because of just some bad stuff that we've gone through historically, or is there some force which is consciously, intentionally manipulating the truth and turning it into its opposite and basically making that yeah, the world that we live in? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, uh, Probably um, there is a way in which this is a natural pattern. So you could say that every living thing comes into this world as like a fresh moment of inspiration. And that in the course of its existence, it becomes kind of beaten and battered in various ways <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? and loses that, that original sense of being that it had uh, when it showed up. That that's kind of just the, what happens thermodynamically with, mm -hmm. with the processes that, that occur naturally. Yeah. And this, 
And this this ties into kind of Ken's idea of magnetism and dielectricity or like the, what's he call it, counter space and stuff like that. But basically there's the creation, which is like a divergence or a spreading apart of things, the adding of space. And that's like the new being, but this, it always returns yeah. to its source. Like everything moves in a circular pattern from where it started in a big arc and returns yeah. to where it came from. And so maybe the latter path of that journey is always kind of similar to what's going on, you know, right now with humanity, this corruption of Yeah, so you could say that you have the centripetal and centrifugal motion and that the, uh, the centrifugal is the expansion into space, the sort of flowering of the uh, posterior effect of electricity would that be the right way of saying it in his terms i think and then you're you're returning to counter space with the centripetal motion which is kind of a uh well in mm -hmm. some respects it's like the, the the return to one and and one of the things that i find a little frustrating about wheeler is that he doesn't really connect the electromagnetic thinking with his metaphysical thinking i mean sort of he does but it seems to me that there's a real connection there that's kind of being missed like the question of what causes the dielectric effect yeah you know why is there a a phenomena occurring at a given point yeah i think i think the he explains really well the whole after something's been created and then it's returning to counter space but i don't feel like he ever really explains why anything leaves counter space in the first place and i right. think that that is the whole link to the metaphysical that he talks about separately, but never really talks about them together. Yeah, precisely. And that my main interest and the interest that's kind of spawned the idea of having these discussions of the Assembly of Silence uh, is to integrate a spiritual and scientific understanding. So the way I see it, we basically live in two worlds. We live in a we're spiritual beings living in a quote material world regardless of what that material world consists of we experience it as a very real domain within which we exist and it seems to me that the spiritual domain and the material domain are connected but they operate quite differently mm -hmm. this to me seems like an incredibly fruitful way wheeler's um, model is an incredibly fruitful way of finding a connection between the two. The, the, the mind, sitta, the, the, the spirit, is, I think, the thing responsible for the phenomena, for the material. Mm -hmm. So he breaks it down into, I think the Greek terms are phenomena and noumena. Noumena is the spirit, phenomena mm -hmm. is the stuff that's happening. It seems obvious to me that consciousness is a phenomena that experiences things from a center, and that the mm -hmm. the, the electromag the dielectric magnetic uh, phenomena is also something which is organized around a center. And so my my hunch is that we're talking about a conscious node in the center of every dielectric magnetic unit yeah 
Yeah. And that's like the, 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 that counter space, or other people call it, I think, zero point. This place where there's no time and no space yeah. because there's no magnitude. There's nothing, nothing happening, and so nothing can be in relation to each other. That is the space where everything also is born from. And it fits both the scientific perspective of the Big Bang, which is basically exactly what they say happened. This is from nothing, something. The one question I have about what you just said is the, is the degree to which we could say that nothing's happening in counter space. Like, is it, uh, we could say nothing physical is happening in counter space, but is it also the case? There's no phenomena. Yeah, so there's no phenomena in counter there's space. No, there's no experience of something happening. Well, that, that I wonder about, like, is there a, like, if we have a dream, right, it's not necessarily happening in the phenomenal world. You know, you can, you can make this slippery expression and say, well, it's a phenomenon that's occurring within consciousness, <laughs> you know, and to some extent, I think that what all of this leads towards is the idea that everything all phenomena is actually occurring within the mind of god if you like you could say mind of god in quotes you know but as we exist right now there's a kind of consensual experience that we can all point to we may have some different ideas about what exactly is going on but if i hold an object and i show it to you you will see that there's an object there and it will have very similar properties and mm -hmm. the things that we're experiencing, we're kind of all experiencing them in each in our own way. But there is a reality that is pretty much uniform, you know, regardless of how we interpret it. That seems to be the basic setup. So and I would I would agree with that. I would I I yeah. There's a is a we all agree that there is an objective world outside of our experience, and that our experience is representative of it. But I feel like. We have to admit that we don't know that for sure. And so I think, I think this is kind of retroduction, the type of thinking that he's talking about. So, okay, we can't know that for sure. So let's go back to a more basic knowing. And that is that this is happening. Now, that's phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so when people are talking, when people are talking about phenomena or when Wheeler's talking about phenomena, I feel like I go, I don't think... He's talking about there's a really a sun out there and we're spinning around it. I think he's talking about there is the experience of the sun in the sky. That's phenomenal. Well, I, I think probably what he's really talking about is just his dielectric mag because he thinks of everything as being an expression of uh, dielectric magnetism. So I think he thinks of phenomena as being dielectric magnetism. Well, how would he account for experience? Where do you think he would put just pure, raw experience in his model? Well, I think he, I think he would think of that as being uh, the domain of consciousness, that, that, the, that, that the experiencer is the soul, and, and his, his whole beef with Buddhism is that they've eliminated the soul <laughs> you know that mm -hmm. that they took the retroduction of it's not this it's not that right so apparently there are long passages within the sutras that are basically you know the atman the eternal soul is not this the atman the eternal soul is not that it's and so it's this kind of long passage of negation that 
was interpreted for some reason as being evidence that the soul doesn't exist. And I actually have this strange feeling that that's maybe not the only reason that the Buddhists think that. Because if you read the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha says that it literally, I mean, it's translated, so I can't, I can't go to the degree that Wheeler does back to the source material, but it's translated that he says, yes, literally, the imperishable soul does not exist. But I think the reason why he says that is because he's talking about a non-differentiated state of being. Right. And so he, it, it's a dialogue where a number of things are brought up and each one of them is knocked down because within an undifferentiated state of being, there is no way of expressing the existence of anything because there's no distinction. And without distinction, you cannot draw a line around something and say that it exists. Mm -hmm. And so he's speaking, from my point of view, he's speaking from a particular state of mind, the undifferentiated state of mind. And to speak, of course, from an undifferentiated state of mind is, is a problem in and of itself. Well, back, back, to, back to experience, though. Like, the, whether, where would Ken see experience is in that model? Like, is it, is, if you have an experience, it seems like that is differentiation. Because even if it's just a white mark, you know, against a background of some other color, that's differentiation. So experience seems to be differentiation, and therefore the soul is pre-differentiation. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I think the way that, I understand him. You know, and then you can make a distinction between the differentiation that occurs within the mind and the differentiation that's occurring within phenomena that, you're, that the mind is experiencing. So, you know, and then it gets a little bit, complicated in trying to make a clear distinction about one or the other because ultimately we can only receive signals from what we're experiencing so we have the senses that give us a kind of uh, a picture of what's happening and our experiences are essentially that picture you know the the thing that we're experiencing is still to some extent hidden from us because there's the mediation of the senses. Mm -hmm. So do you think that when he says phenomena, he is referring to actual objects or that he is referring to experience? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. My, my feeling about it is that he's referring to actual objects. I think that when he's talking about dielectric magnetism, he's talking about the phenomenal world, quote unquote, out there, um, not experience within consciousness. Hmm. So you mentioned, I think we've kind of covered uh, both sides of the, the stuff he talks about that we're interested in, kind of the Buddhist perspective, metaphysics, and the, the, the existence of a self. And then the other side, which would be kind of like the physics-oriented type perspective explaining magnetism and electricity and all those things. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you felt like there was something missing. Yeah. And uh, this was outside of this conversation. But I'm wondering, what, what do you think that is? Well, part of it is, is the two don't seem to be that clearly connected. And, you know, we already discussed, I think, 
I think we basically agree where that point of connection is, which is, you know, the the sense of a center of being, which is the self, and the center of counter space from which and to which the dielectric magnetic phenomena occurs, right? So why, why do you think there is, why do you think he shies away from making that connection? And do you think he does make the connection and just doesn't talk about it? Or does he not even make the connection? I have no idea. I've, I've speculated about that. And I, there are a couple of things that he said that have made me think that he will not discuss certain things for some reason or another. I remember he once said that uh, he will not talk about astrology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he didn't say it in it like usually if he was going to dismiss something because he thinks it's bullshit he would spend a fair amount of time talking about what bullshit it is mm-hmm. and one of the other things that annoys me about him is that quite often he will just simply insult something instead of giving us real reasons why it's bullshit so he'll just say it's like you know we may as well just say there's unicorns and um and hobgoblins or something like that you know like he'll just make some kind of basic statement like another one of the things that he's always talking about is nature is not a crack <laughs> addicted crazy yeah. whore right that and it's like he uses that all the time and to my way of thinking it's not a very useful metaphor i don't really know what that means <laughs> like <laughs> you know he'll also say you know if nature is is a is a woman, then she's like a hippie girl with uh, hairy armpits. Yep. And, you know, it's like, what the hell does that mean, Ken? Why are you saying that over and over again in so many different videos? It's and there's a part of me that feels like he's using a, a a set of images that are almost designed to discredit what he's saying. Yeah. Well, how does it, I don't understand how it discredits what he's saying. Well, because it's, it's, how do you take that seriously? It's not a real criticism to say that nature is not a a crack whore with, you know, a crazy crack whore with a bag full of magic particles. Uh And, and it's not really making a case for his uh, vision of thing to say that she's a, a dirty hippie girl. He can't make the case in every time that he wants to reference the fact that he believes that. And he does make the case plenty in other videos. It just it's just feels like a quirky way to, you know, vent that hostility while also being funny in a way that kind of I don't know, I think it's kind of attracts people in a way. I actually find it kind of funny that he talks that way. And mm. yet at the same time, that analogy of the crack riddle you know the you know the one and then the 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 hippie girl <laughs> i think it i think it fits it it makes sense to me <laughs> i feel like he's conveying a complex idea very very efficiently I mean, well tell me what is it about the dielectric magnetic phenomena that is like a hippie girl <laughs> it's 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 flo- it's flowing it's simple and you know it's just, it's just, it's really about the simplicity and, and the flowing nature of it rather than the, you know, very harsh and jagged and un, you know, comp- incomprehensibly complex theories of particles bouncing off of each other. Huh. Well, I guess actually you're saying that has helped me to, uh, to get some kind of a better picture of what he means by that. 
Okay, fair enough. It just doesn't strike me as being the best metaphor, but I guess nature is traditionally thought of as being female. So on that level, it also makes sense that he would continue <laughs> with that kind of traditional metaphor, which I think probably is informed by his Greek. And uh, I imagine also probably in, in Pali and Sanskrit, those ideas would be pretty well integrated into that, that nature would be seen as, as a female, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That hadn't occurred to me before, so that's probably also true. Well, okay, so the frustration, I guess, has something to do with mode of presentation, mm -hmm. something that, that seems to fall short when it comes to connecting the really deep ideas that he's working with. I also feel that even though repetition is really important, there's a way in which many of his videos, he's really just saying literally the same thing over and over again many times, which which I find a little peculiar, like, I don't know if that really has any significance, but it is something that I notice and makes me wonder about what's going on with the dude. Um, so what do you, what do you suspect is going on with the repetition? Cause I, I mean, for example, I know a guy who he tells the same joke multiple times. Every time I meet him, basically the joke is I'm not smart. I'm just lazy. And, you know, it's just like, I can't believe that you make this joke every single time I talk to you multiple times. And everyone who knows you says the same thing, that you make the same joke. And it's just like, there's something in your mind. You're, you're a really smart guy, but there's something in your mind that you just don't get that this is weird. That's interesting. So, and I think, you know. So he is a really smart guy, right? So th this guy you're talking about. Yeah. Now, yeah. In what way is he a really smart guy? Because it seems like it has something to do. It's almost like a kind of spectrum type of thing, right? Yeah, he's he's like he's an engineer, you know, very technically minded, hmm. and was probably socially awkward, I would guess, for most of his life. I think that may be might be the common uh, the commonality here. Mm -hmm. So it may it may just simply be that, and it's quite often I think the case with many really hyper intelligent people that they're not necessarily the most socially and where are you going to put your energy if you're going to put your energy into being social quite often you're not going to put your energy into thinking and and uh, studying so so if it's not if it isn't that though then what is the, what is the thing that you suspect like what's it sounds like you're hinting at that you're suspicious of something, as if there's a foul play or something going on. Well, here. one of the things that I've noticed is that he he pleads poverty quite often, but if you take a look at his videos, he's got mm. an unbelievable amount of high-end equipment. Yep. And you know, I actually saw a video that he shot from a vehicle that I assume is his vehicle. It looked like it looked like a BMW sports car or something like that. You know, like. <laughs> yep. So there seems to be the potential for some charlatanism going on there in order to, you know, make his way. I mean, I, I think most of his videos get roughly uh, somewhere in the 50,000 views range. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how YouTube works when it comes to uh, monetization, like how, how much you get for that kind of a thing. He doesn't run ads, right? Well so he does he does run ads he's definitely monetized and i imagine he makes quite a bit i mean he's not like top level but you know that's a, a thousands of views per video when you make video multiple videos a day that's decent income do you have a sense of how much it is no i would just say i could live off of it easily <laughs> but you know i don't 
I don't have any income and I'm living just fine. So that's not saying That's much. amazing. We need to have a, a whole uh, episode just on that sometime. <laughs> sure. How to live on no income. I think that, you know, that really, uh, that's the trick we all need to learn. So let's, uh, let's put a pin in that one. For oh, the next yeah, sure. that's, that sounds good. And, and just to be clear, I don't have no income. I just have comparably what would seem like to everybody no income. Right. So just, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, go to extremes and make people think I don't right. spend money. Well, you know, uh, so there's that, you know, staying on topic. I, I, I'm tempted to get off topic, yep. but I'm going to stay on topic. So <laughs> that's one thing that's kind of raised a flag. Yeah, that could be explained, but go ahead. The other thing that raises a flag for me, and I think that you've uh, addressed this pretty well, in, and it's something I've also thought about, like the level of disappointment that he's felt over a lifetime of really hard study and a lot of serious work and a lot of serious thought and of uh, basically not being able to get any traction except i guess having this youtube channel mm -hmm. which is i think pretty significant uh, you know so yeah but that disappointment is the reason why he's continually harping on how stupid everyone is and that he uses uh he uses these videos as a way of kind of cathartically releasing all of that disappointment and anger and i find that to be problematic you know i can understand it but it but i just i i am annoyed whenever he goes into this whole thing about einstein being a fuzzy haired idiot or whatever it is like you know he just has his routines that he goes into yeah crackpot yeah i i actually find it i find it makes him more credible really like the fact that he is saying all these things and then and knowing that if if these things are true and if he, if he's right about these things then he's he's lived a hard life where he's likely going to be cynical and so the fact that he is cynical makes me go well i think this what he's saying is definitely not lie he's not lying to me he definitely believes what he's saying well this gets back to the fact that it seems like he actually is doing a lot better than he's letting on like he, he says things like, yeah, they, yeah. you know, they just send me all the camera gear and stuff like that. But that was a pretty nice vehicle. And I don't think he was just borrowing it for the day. And, you know, he's gotten a super nice watch on and but stuff he, like, you know, it's just, he, he's. People go through phases. Like for example, I used to make almost a hundred thousand dollars a year as a video game producer. Right. And now I, I make none. And so, you know, I may ask him my videos for people to send me coconut oil uh, when I could have bought you know, huge amounts of coconut oil without even feeling it at one point in my life. So he could still have a car from a previous time in his life when he was making more money. That's true, yeah. It's just, it, it is explainable. That's true, but the point is that he's not um, uh, destitute. So you could understand the bitterness and all yeah. of that anger if he were in a really bad situation, but it, it seems to me that he's not in a really bad situation. So the thing that strikes me is that if you're trying to convince the scientific world of your ideas, then why would you criticize? I mean, it's okay. Even if you're going to criticize Einstein, don't just make it an insult about him being a fuzzy haired crackpot because that's just so easy to dismiss. It just seems like really bad marketing of your ideas. It's, it's easy for to dismiss for people who don't actually want to, 
learn the truth if they're if they if it if it means that they're wrong. So anyone who doesn't want to know the truth is going to be turned off by that because they're going to use it as an excuse. The excuse that they're looking for do not have to worry about what this guy's saying. Well, that's true. But, but I, someone like you and me, we're like, uh, if you believe that you have information that's of value to the scientific world and the scientific world is resistant to it then it seems to me that you would take some measures to make whatever it is you're saying as as receivable as listenable as 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 accessible as possible to people who are mm -hmm. within the sciences and who are unlikely to want to make that extra effort to figure out what it is that you're really saying, you know? So the thing is he's, he already makes the effort. Like he's made these type of efforts and, you know, like on Wikipedia, he tries to be civil and to post, you know, factual information about translations, which are wrong and which he knows are correct. And he gets shut down. It's like, he could go the normal way, but the thing is they're not going to pay attention to that either because these people just don't want to know that they're wrong. It doesn't really matter how you present it. And once you realize that, then you can enjoy yourself so much more. As someone who makes videos, just go, the people who actually want to know and who are gonna be open to hearing this stuff, they're gonna get over it. They're gonna get over the fact that I'm expressing a little bit of an annoyance. And you know, I don't express much annoyance, but I do sometimes. And I definitely, will, it makes me enjoy making videos way more that I can just be myself and express those emotions. Hmm. And I just think that's what he's doing. He's fallen into a groove of just making videos. He makes jokes all the time about how, oh, I'll edit that out. And then he laughs maniacally because he knows that he's at a point where he just he's just going to make the videos and he's not going to worry about all that stuff because right. people who want to know are going to listen. Yeah, I guess there's some wisdom to that. I can see that. But I also think that there's a lot of people who get introduced to the sciences in school, even if you don't become a scientist. There's a lot of people who take a bunch of classes in, in various fields of science and they have a worldview that's kind of set up around those ideas. And, you know, every new way of thinking is uh, reliant upon other minds getting interested in. So it just seems to me like it, it doesn't serve his, his purpose to, to have that as so, so often. But, it's, but, but other minds are. Other minds are interested in it. I suppose so. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't please everyone. That's for sure. So it's really not the most interesting point. I think it, what he is saying, the substance of what he's saying is far more interesting. And, and there are a lot of questions, you know, I don't fully understand his model, the, the dielectric magnetic you know, the geometry of it seems to be what he's focusing on. And, and there's something about that that I like because you can visualize it. And I'm not sure that there's anything more than that geometry necessary. But being able to visualize what what this is doing, what, you know, what the basic unit of, of phenomena is about and, and getting a sense of how this unbelievable complexity can arise from the interaction of all of these fundamentally dielectric magnetic nodes that's kind of exciting i mean it, it feels like it fits in with the metaphysical model that i've been working with that conscious node network mm -hmm. and i think it kind of takes an extra step into explaining phenomena yeah if you have a force vector associated with consciousness that's that's what's exciting to me. 
Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like it, it also ties into our previous conversations on free will. I mean, we brought in this, the idea of there being a place outside of the mind of the brain, which is processing conceptual ideas and injecting, making a choice and changing the environment and which would necessitate injecting energy into the system, which was not already there. And that to me sounds like free will. Yeah. And you know, one of the other things that seems to be implied, and I'm not entirely sure if this is accurate, is that the dielectric magnetic phenomena are kind of oscillating that, that there's a, um, the centripetal and centrifugal are on some level, I, I don't know if, if it's at an extremely high rate, but there's a, a kind of flip-flop type of thing going on, which suggests, you know, incoming mm -hmm. outgoing can also be, if you have a note of consciousness, well, the, the, the centripetal is basically information received and the centrifugal is energy being expressed into the, the, the domain, right? So you could, mm -hmm. you could see that as being an information exchange model that, that is linked to the yep. conscious node at the center of every uh, dielectric magnetic node. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it does still kind of involve the problem of determinism. I mean, if we're staying on the, the free, will, free will idea, if, if things which are expressed out into the world and then return to that center point, I mean, we may never be able to calculate what's happening there, but it, it could purely, whatever comes out after everything goes in could be deterministic still. There's just, that seems like no way that we can actually know that. Well, I mean, it all depends upon the processor, right? So the extent to which whatever it is that's receiving information has an experiencer that can make a decision about what's going to occur, that's the degree to which you would say that there's free will in the universe, you know? But what if the processor is simply the process of all of those things crashing into each other? You know, you know, dot, converging into, you know, the, the smallest space possible, basically non-space. And there doesn't necessarily have to be a processor. Well, wouldn't that um, preclude the possibility of creation? You know, if everything were just simply, I mean, this is sort of the colliding particle model in a certain sense. It's like, it's just a big billiard table and uh, everything is just going to behave the way it is because of the various collisions occurring uh, as things come into uh, proximity with each other. It seems like no matter what, we have to realize or pick something which has always existed. And even if that's the counter space, which is not technically existing anywhere or in, at any time, it still is the thing which was and always was, well, you know, and I always mean, will I, be. And okay, this is this is great because uh, I've actually been having a discussion with someone about the <laughs> about the definition of exists. <laughs> like, what does it mean to say that something exists? So it seems that. Even mm -hmm. if something isn't in the phenomenal world, then it could still exist in the noumenal world, right? So if, there's, if there is spirit and there is something beyond just being that happens in the spiritual domain, because uh, there appear to be 
and you know, I'm saying appear because I don't know, there appear to be a, uh, a wide range of operations that can occur within cognition that don't necessarily have a physical correlate. So mm -hmm. that suggests that stuff can happen within the spiritual domain that has nothing to do with the physical material phenomena. But that, I would say that in the way that I'm using existed, uh, I mean, there's two different ways you can talk about existing. You can talk about as phenomena, or you could talk about as, if, if there is something which exists, <sighs> it's hard to explain, but it's just like, if there's something that everything comes from and returns to, and yet we can't really define it in terms of, existing i can still use existing in a different way to talk about this thing being something you know what i mean well i think initially you said that that if counter space doesn't exist so we could say counter space doesn't exist as a a point a cartesian point in space time yeah in 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 you know you know i i'm hesitating to use the word space because Wheeler says, well, space has no attributes, so how could you assign a point to it? So you could say in the physical frame or in, th in the phenomenal world, there is no Cartesian point that can be uh, correlated with counter space. Right. And I think that's a great point. You know, that's one of his main concepts is that magnets don't have physical poles, I guess is probably the clearest example that he uses. So there is no such thing as a north and south pole because a magnet can be infinitely divided and each one is going to have its own north and south pole so you can't assign a north or south location to any point in phenomenal space let's say right mm -hmm. so counter space is this it's like a location without a location you know it it it's something it's the interface between what i, I would call it the interface between understanding and substance, the inf interface between spirit and, and material. Mm -hmm. so, so in the model, that there, there's counter space, and I would say that could p potentially be the thing that we would say has always existed. But it seems like we could also choose to be the thing which has always existed, counter space and magnetism and dielectricity. Like there has always been phenomena there was never a time when there wasn't phenomena yeah and you 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 know it seems likely because we live in a world where phenomena arises as a result of contradictory opposites so we have uh, I, I might be getting myself into trouble here but um <laughs> we have the phenomena of light right and then we have mm -hmm. the absence of light so in the same sense you could say that you have the phenomena of inertial counterspace, and then you have the phenomena of the loss of inertia, which is exactly what he calls it, right? So mm -hmm. the two seem to be linked, so it may well be that the, the noumenal and phenomenal worlds always have coexisted, uh, but they are on, on some level like opposite sides of the mirror. They're not the same world. They exist in some kind of, of different domains, but they are inextricably linked, like all co-creating opposites. Right. 
So back back to the determinism thing, if you could see it as, if you see it from one side of the equation, it looks like everything is a result, any emanation from counter space is a result of what came back into it and in what arrangement. And you don't necessarily have to see it as there being a processor. If you, if you take the standpoint of starting from counter space, then the idea of free will and creation makes sense, but you don't necessarily have to choose that as your starting. So you're saying that the that uh, that the phenomenal world could be the starting point. Well, if we're, if we're saying that counter space is, it can't exist without the phenomenal world, then neither one came first, and so you can kind of choose what point from what point you want to interpret everything and so i feel like the determinists are basically well that's not necessary i mean that's not necessarily true because you can you can have the light and the dark but you can't start the the relationship between the two with darkness right like uh in order to have the two the light has to be lit well, does that make I, sense? I don't know about that. I think that uh, you can see that as the de- the light came from darkness, and then the shadow is the return to darkness. How how did light come from darkness? <laughs> oh man! What? Okay, so <laughs> we can explain darkness as the absence of light, but we can also explain light as the absence of darkness. Well, I mean, the way it works in the phenomenal world is that there is a object that I'm not going to say emits because we're talking about Wheeler. So uh-huh. we're going to say that's a field perturbation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and that that field perturbation is experienced as light. So it's a, uh, I think he calls it a coaxial a field perturbation. Right, but there's a stage before perturbation, um, and that would be darkness. Well, but the thing is that in order to have the the um, the dynamic interaction between the two, you know, the co-creation aspect of things, you would have to have the light playing into the darkness. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is that if there's a creator, then there's operations that can occur within the creator before the creation happens, right? So, if you're talking about Big Bang, then we have the beginning of the phenomenal world. And so something happened if there was a beginning that would cause the phenomenal world to come into being. So counter space could be seen as being the, the connecting point between the creator and the creation. But that creator, the thing which is kind of represented let's say by counter space you know you say counter space is sort of a a portal to the spiritual domain from the point of view of the physical domain but that spiritual domain could have a variety of operations that might have occurred prior to there being the opening of that portal but but it's possible that those pre those things that happened before the creation are just the past creations returning to their source uh, say that one more time. I think I almost got what you're saying. So if, if things are being admitted from counter space 
And then those things eventually return to counter space after going on their circular or spiral path. Then those things could be seen as that pre-processing that you're talking about before creation, existing in the prenatal, in counter space. And then there's the creation. And you seem to be saying that that is something separate from any of the magnetism, the, 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 the divergence and convergence. There's some other place in counter space. But I'm saying, okay, that's possible, but it could be that whatever comes out of counter space is direct, directly a result of what has, re, what has re, came out of it and then returned to it. Does that make sense? Um, I'm not entirely sure because it seems to imply a sequence, whereas uh, to, to the best of my understanding, the, the opening of, of the magnetic field requires that there be essentially, I don't know if simultaneous is quite the right word, but that, that centripetal and centrifugal uh, motions are immediately established. So I'm not sure if it's really that something is going out there and coming back. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems yes. like it... it and, and, and right, I'm thinking about it, in I'm describing it in terms of particles. And yeah, the, the motion, the returning, the, the, the central pedal, that's right when it's coming back together, that starts immediately, yeah. but it's still, it's still influencing counter space. It's still well, it's returning like to counter space. A field perturbation, uh, it's not really a motion until there's something in there to be affected by the force, right? And so, you know, you, you, you have, uh, like, let's say every, uh, every counter space that, that opens up into a magnetic, um, a magnetic field is like a bubble, right? And so, you know, they're going to be bubbles inside of, of bubbles, like the little bubbles inside of a bigger bubble. And those little mm -hmm. bubbles are going to be moved by the force of the bigger bubble, right? Yeah. So the, the perturbation, if there were no smaller bubbles in the big bubble, then as far as I know, it's all potential. There's no actual movement. There's not a thing that's going out and coming back, which is kind of a little, it's a little troubling to try to imagine what that really is, you know, like, uh, there's a reason why we don't see it until we put it in, in into, you know, he's got those, the, the, the uh, magnetics uh, viewer. What is that thing called? Ferrocell. Yeah. Ferrocell. Exactly. It's not until you expose something that will respond to a magnetic field that you can see the field. The field is entirely invisible because there's, there is nothing going out and coming back in a certain sense. It's a field perturbation. Mm -hmm. So, what does that mean? You know, it's like, but we can still think of, we can still think about this in terms of input. I mean, if we go back to thinking about it in kind of the terms that we were speaking about free will in previous episodes, there is an input to, to our individual selves, which I think we both agreed is then processed somewhere. And I think we would both say that that's in counter space. And then there is the action which we choose, which would be the divergent situation. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with you that when, we, when we're talking about worlds where space and time don't exist, that 
it can be dangerous to think about things in terms of a cycle or an input output. But I think that well, it's okay, just the way actually, we think. What you just said is really interesting because where would the space and time actually exist in this model? You know, uh, space would be a posterior effect of magnetism. So he, he says explicitly at a certain point, I actually have a couple of notes that I wrote down here, that uh, magnetism, space, and force are all the same thing, which is a fascinating set of mm -hmm. things to equate with each other. But time, I don't think exists in, in the phenomenal world. I think that would be a, a, uh, a, a noumenal pr uh, property. So that would be a. I think time would be a property of a, a noumenal meaning uh, something that exists yeah. only in spirit. It depends, of course, how you define time. You know, change is occurring, but change is different from time. So change is occurring within the phenomenal world, but time, as in like past and future, right? Or even speed, because of course speed implies. Yeah, a, but we can think we can. We can say that things have happened, like you and I have spoken before this conversation. That's, that's past. I mean, that seems real. Yeah, but it's not happening in the physical world. You know, it happened in this physical world, but it doesn't have reality in, in, in the phenomenal world. Yeah. We have, we have record of it. We have memory of it, right? We can refer to it. Yeah but it's not in the physical world. So the, the time isn't existing in the physical world. Well, in a way, in, 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 in a way it is. I mean, it is inextricably linked to where we are now. Well, yeah, but that, the, linkage, the linkage between consciousness and phenomena is inextricable. But the, but the actual event of us having spoken before is not happening in the physical frame. It's not part of, of uh, the phenomenal world that we're living in now. We're, now we're having this conversation, right? But the words I said a, a few moments ago are no longer part of the physical domain. It's only the words that are being spoken right now that are creating a actual expression into the physical domain. And there's a, a, a certain amount of delay because even if you were sitting right next to me, it, there would be a delay between the amount of time that the air, you know, was vibrated by my vocal cords, and then it got into your ears, and then the whole processing part of it. And when I'm using the word processor, I'm kind of just saying there's there's like a black box that does something with the information. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. thinking of necessarily a CPU. I'm just kind of saying there's a there's something that that's receiving this this um, data, this experience and is doing something to it, just on the most basic level. So the, the physical world only exists in the present moment, and that's, that's the only thing that exists. But, and so you're, I think you're saying that the understanding or the idea that there was something that happened, which is no longer happening, is something that exists in, in purely in the mind. Yet it, yeah. it seems to be you know, very hard, hard, very true. You know, it's, it's, it's not like some, it's not like we can really say that time doesn't exist and we can, we can, it seems, it seems inaccurate to, to when we say that time doesn't exist in the physical world, 
that's not what we're, we really mean when we're talking about something happened in the past. It seems like we're confusing what we're talking about. Well, I think that what happens when we start to refer to things in the physical world as if it was happening at some other point in time is that we get confused about what the physical world is, consists of. And that leads into some very, very big problems. I think that, that time is a property only of, of the mind, that, that it's entirely a interpretive. But that's, not, but that's not a diminishment. It sounds like a diminishment of time when you say it that way. I don't think so. I don't think it's a diminishment. I don't see why. Well, but I feel like when people, when people say that, it's, it's usually in response to someone talking about time in a certain way. And then it's just like, well, but time doesn't exist. But it's just like, well, yeah, it does. It exists in the mind. It's like, but it only exists in the mind. Well, but that's a significant statement. Of course, yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah. No, I think that, that that's basically what allows for, well, I don't know if this is a great way of looking at it, but without a mind that had a concept of time, this would be a very dull universe. I mean, it just seems that it's the ability for consciousness to have a concept of what's going on that makes this life worth living. If we weren't able, you know, time. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if it would be dull. Uh, you, I used to think that the whole motion of the universe was because of boredom, but when, in one of our recent conversations, you made me start thinking that it's more about fear. Oh yeah. Fear of non-being. And so, so I don't know, that changes the way I think. Uh, I, like, it's almost like the universe wouldn't necessarily be boring if we didn't have a concept of time. It could be just deeply blissful and you, it wouldn't matter that it was just going to go on forever. It would just be so good. I suppose so. I guess it depends on what the experience is that one is having. <laughs> well, I'm saying the fundamental state. Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, 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 you're right. I mean, I'm thinking about water here. Like you're talking about the trigrams. Yeah. Like talking about the trigrams, you seem to be describing water. You know, it's not thinking about the past or the future. Right. And we tend to think of water probably as being a pleasant experience and that's kind of where i was coming from oh I, I think maybe water, it's actually quite horrific to be water oh my god yeah water is is called the abysmal so the abysmal water it's like falling into an abyss because you have no context for where you are or where you're going and yeah of course water but is, that's okay if it's pleasurable it's bad if it's you know yeah, but have you ever pink. have you ever floated downstream in a river and then all of a sudden you realize man you know this is getting fast. <laughs> There's some big rocks here, you know, like, <laughs> well, that's, it can turn on a dime, you know, it's sort of like in the ocean, you know, you sort of swim and then you realize, Oh, how did I get so far from the shore? You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's abysmal because you will experience both the good and the bad and you will have no way of influencing it. You'll be completely prey, not prey, but victim to whatever circumstances just happen to be in your future. Yeah, but I think also technically, uh, from the point of view of that of the trigram model that I'm working with, we're talking about states of mind, and so it's referring to a state of mind where there's nothing but the immediate sensation being experienced, and so there's no way to contextualize it, which is why a concept of time is so important. So having memory, it gives you the ability 
to replay on some level, even though it's not as as immediate as the actual experience, it, it there is a way of being able to kind of go back in quotes and re-experience, yeah. you know, whatever it is that happened. And then you can get some sense of what possibilities there are. And that's basically what time is. So time is this, we are able to somehow encode, you know, the, the various sensations that we have into objects in memory. Yeah, we have been able to kind of like gather the frequencies of a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. and and store them and carry them along with us and so that's what i mean when i say and it's almost like they still exist and we're also able to do operations with those objects once they've been created so we have experiences which become encoded into various objects and then the conscious uh, mind is able to and maybe even some parts of the subconscious mind but that's a whole other discussion uh, is able to do operations on those objects and my my sense is that that's a really great model for counterspace. So if I was going to marry the the trigram theory with Wheeler's dielectric magnetism, I would say that counterspace is determined by either the prenatal or postnatal arrangements. That there's a, a an operation occurring within, and that, and then that's sort of what is um, existing, if you like within counter space is a conscious mm -hmm. node that has time as its primary element. And so it's able to have a variety of different configurations and some nodes are just going to be set to one thing or another. So are you differentiating conscious and experience when you use consciousness here? I would say that consciousness is the vessel that has experience, getting the experience, if you like. Okay, but you're saying that in order to, you said in there that in order to have consciousness, you must have some way of recording the past and then reflecting on it in order to try and steer the future. No, I wasn't saying in order to have okay. consciousness. I was saying in order to be, in order to be oriented uh, to within phenomena. So you, you could have a state of being that's just, that's only able to receive immediate sensory impressions without any ability to store or do any operations on them. So let's take water just to kind of start at the beginning here. This is the state of being of consciousness where there isn't a thought, a way of storing future past events and therefore no way of conceiving of future ones. Yet can that experience contain both bliss and agony? Can agony exist without the idea of a previous experience to compare it to? I, I, my gut instinct is yes, but I don't know if I can provide a reason why. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine too. You know, except to say that it depends to the extent that consciousness identifies itself with a body. Because one of the things that they say in, in, uh, in Taoism is that the reason why we have suffering is because of the body. Uh, you can't mm. really have suffering without a body. So, but isn't energy a body in a way? I mean, it, you could think of just a gust of wind as having body to it. I mean, it's a form of energy. It's made up of matter. Just because it's not a human body doesn't mean it can't have experience or negative experience. 
Yeah, I think if we're if we're going to stick with this like with this model strictly, we could say that the magnetic field is a body. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, because it has all the basic. It takes up space, right? It creates space. Space is a byproduct of it, right? And yep. it has force associated with it. So we could use that as the basic model for a body. So then the question is the extent to which uh, the consciousness within counter space is attached to that body. And that would be the degree to which that consciousness would be either experiencing joy or suffering, depending upon the conditions it finds itself in. Mm. So this is an interesting, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about our conversations is that we'll talk for an hour and I'll still feel like we're just getting started. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, which is, I guess, great because it means that we have a lot to talk about, but I don't want to end up with another two hour episode <laughs> to explore. Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>